Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, professor of theoretical physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week on Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, we're going to have two very special guests who are going to talk about things that we normally never talk about. For example, we take the oceans for granted. We take for granted that when we go to the seashore, we don't see whales or different kinds of sea life teeming right on the shore. We take for granted that we never have a close encounter with a whale. However, is that just a prejudice of the last century? What was it like 200, 300 years ago? Unfortunately, there are very few detailed records of sea life back then, but Professor Robert Callum of York University in England went through the records, and he was shocked, absolutely shocked, to find out that our ancestors, the ancient mariners, lived in a world where they took it for granted that, of course, you would have whales right near shore. And for that matter, there'd be so many whales that you could actually smell whales' breath. Now think about that for a moment. When was the last time you, or anybody, smelled whales' breath? But according to the records, this was such a common occurrence, such a common occurrence that the ancient mariners took it for granted that that's always the way it was. Well, until now. So Dr. Robert Callum makes a very interesting thesis, and that is the oceans of today, the oceans that we take for granted, the oceans that we've always seen and loved are not the way they were 200, 300 years ago. But in fact, we are witnessing a depleted ocean, the end game of the oceans. The oceans are dying, and because human lifespans are not that long, we have to realize that only our ancestors realized that the oceans were teeming with sea life, and we take it for granted that the oceans are depleted, and it's always been that way. Well, he says wrong. So once again, our first special guest is Dr. Robert Callum of York University, author of an exciting new book called The Unnatural Histories of the Seas. So is it possible that what we consider the ocean is really the end game of the ocean. And then in the second half of exploration, we're going to talk about something else that we take for granted, and that is music. We take it for granted that everyone loves music. We take it for granted that we have a huge music industry. We enliven and enrich our world with music. But the question is, why? What about the animal kingdom? Do they have music? What about the human brain? What is the purpose of music anyway from an evolutionary point of view? Well, our special guest in the second half of exploration is Professor Oliver Sacks of Columbia University, and he has a new book out called Musical Philia, tracing the genetic and physiological and evolutionary origins of our love for music. Well, once again, our first special guest today is Robert Callum of York University, author of the book, the Unnatural History of the Seas. Now, 
now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. He's Professor Callum Roberts. He's a professor at York University in England, and he's the author of a new but very disturbing book called The Unnatural History of the Sea. He contends that we are now entering the end game, the end game in the life of the oceans, that we have depleted the oceans of much of its sea life, that we have polluted the rest, and the fate of humanity itself hangs in the balance. And of course, we take the oceans for granted. We think that the oceans will always be there, that we can always harvest sea life from the oceans. However, he claims that we are now witnessing the end game in the history of the life-giving oceans. So once again, our guest today is Professor Callum Roberts of York University in England, author of the new book, The Unnatural History of the Sea. Okay, now let's get into the substance of your book, The Unnatural History of the Sea. Your book is, is rather unnatural, too, because instead of simply starting off with the oceans as they are today, you talk about the oceans and sea life as they once were, a, a world that we've never seen in modern times. So explain to us what, was the, what were the oceans like for the ancient mariners? Well, it's hard to, to know from uh, our experiences today what the oceans are like because we've, we've come to see the uh, rather impoverished state of the seas as being natural, the, uh, the scarcity of marine mammals, the uh, lack of really big fish. And when I started reading old accounts of the seas from uh, the 15th century or even earlier, I, I was amazed by the scenes of abundance that the authors painted of those times. And so I really wanted to um, try and build up as, as accurate a picture as I could of the seas of the past, using a whole range of different sources from uh, old manuscripts to um, archaeological research. And uh, doing that, what, I, what I've tried to do is to breathe life again into the oceans of old so that people of today's generations can see what past oceans were like before people started uh, exploiting them intensively. Okay, you mentioned that 400 years ago in Monterey Bay, uh, there were so many whales that sailors were stifled by the stench of whale breath. Okay, uh, explain to us how it's possible we could have so many whales back in those days that whale breath was a problem. Well, whales were unbelievably abundant before we started to hunt them. And uh, whale hunting really began in about the 18th century in a serious way and uh, 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 in the waters of New England and um, in the Arctic. Uh, the, the whale hunting really began in the 17th century. So um, it's been a very long time since oceans had their full complement of whales. So you have to go back quite far in time to find accounts like that of uh, Monterey Bay. It's it, it just seems unbelievable to us today that the, the whales could be so abundant. But the first sailors to go into Monterey Bay found hundreds, if not thousands, of whales there crowding into this rich place where the, the whales came to feed. And uh, the, the whales came so close to the boats that people complained that they were throwing water on the decks when they blew. And not only that, but they were stifled by this cadaverous stench of their breath, as they, they put it. It, it uh, is hard to imagine the abundance of whales, given how we have depleted the oceans of whale populations since then. 
there were sailors who first sailed into the Arctic in the uh, uh, 1600s who described the whales as being as common uh, as if they were porpoises. And to put that in context, the waters that they were sailing from in Europe uh, had really abundant porpoises. And um, an account from 1776 says that porpoises are so common in the waters around this country that um, they, they are noxious to seamen who... Uh, sail in small boats, and that they darken the waters as they rise to take breath. And you also mentioned the cod, the cod and the haddock. Uh, their schools of fish were so thick that if you dropped a weight, uh, the weight would rest on the backs of these fish before slowly reaching the bottom. That's unimaginable today, right? It is. It is. And uh, so people have tended to dismiss these uh, descriptions as being fanciful, but in fact, uh, there are many different descriptions written by people from all walks of life of different purposes, different audiences, and they have a great deal of consistency. And uh, one such account was from one of the early governors of Newfoundland who said that the, the cod were often so thick in the water that you could hardly row a boat through them. When you look at early uh, descriptions of the catch rates of cod, um, they, they, they say that uh, three men in a boat could catch uh, a thousand cod in a day. And if you if you do the calculations, that's one cod every three minutes for a very long day of fishing. So really, all they had to do was to bait the hook, put the line over the side of the boat, and, and haul back again. And immediately, they would have a cod on the, on the line. Well, early accounts of explorers in North America uh, state that the carrier pigeon, which is now extinct, the carrier pigeon, there were swarms of them such that it would take literally hours an entire afternoon for the swarm of carrier pigeons to finally sail overhead, and now they're all gone. And the same thing with the, uh, the bison. They're almost all gone, too. So there must be a whole list of sea life that are near extinction. And what we consider normal is actually the oceans with many forms of life near extinction, right? That's right. In fact, uh, there, there are very few species in the sea that we uh, can be absolutely sure have gone extinct. Uh, for example, stellar sea cow, this uh, enormous sea cow that used to be uh, uh, 30 feet long and lived in the waters of the Bering Sea, that disappeared. That went extinct within 27 years of being discovered by people in the, in the 1740s. But most animals in the sea uh, still exist somewhere. So in that sense, uh, the oceans are, are better off than we are on land because Many of the big animals that lived on land went extinct when humans first swept across the continent uh, 10,000, 20,000, or 40,000 years ago. But the extinction wave of uh, really big animals in the sea is happening with today's generation. So animals like the, uh, the magnificent bluefin tuna in the North Atlantic, which can grow as large as a moose and uh, uh, that uh, can uh, swim extremely fast and attack these large shoals of forage fish like capelin and herring uh, in the northeast coast of North America, those have become extremely rare today. And they're, they're so highly valued today that uh, it pays to fish them, even though they have been so reduced in abundance. So that they're really at great risk of going extinct. Now let's say a few things about the situation today. Uh, where we get used to the fact that the normal oceans are actually nearly depleted. Uh, tell us a little bit about drag fishing and the kinds of methods that modern technology uses 
that in principle could clean out the entire oceans? Well, uh, bottom trawling or drag fishing uh, was invented in the 14th century. And we know that because of a complaint that was made to the king in 1376 in England to say that uh, some fishermen had uh, contrived a new contraption, which was incredibly damaging way of catching fish because it destroyed the, the flowers of the land below water there and the spat of oysters and mussels and the small fish upon which the great fish are accustomed to be fed and nourished. Now, what happened was that the king appointed a, a committee of inquiry and uh, they decided there, there wasn't enough evidence to ban this gear, but they would simply push it further offshore and people could use it there. Out of sight, out of mind, really. Uh, Drag fishing became very controversial again in the 19th century when um, uh, people added steam power to the vessels. So before then, uh, the, the, the nets had been towed by sailing boats, and that really limited the range where they could fish and uh, the power of fishing. But in the 19th century, steam uh, released um, sailors from the, the, the uh, control of wind and tide. And since then, uh, drag net fishing has, has been spreading across the world's oceans and continental shelves. Today, something like the um, entire area of the world's continental shelves is hit by bottom trawls every uh, two years. And uh, really, the, the, the transformation of the seabed that this has caused has not really been appreciated properly until recent years. When you drag a net across the seabed, what it does is more than catch fish. It also cuts down the, uh, the animals that live on the bottom, things like corals and sponges and sea fans. So in the process of trying to catch fish, you're, you're actually destroying the habitats that they live in. So at the end of the 19th century, when there was this uh, wave of steam trawling moving into new areas, the seabed was transformed from uh, a, a biologically rich and complex habitat um, into areas of sand and mud and gravel that characterize the seas that we're familiar with today. What we now realize is that those are really not natural environments in any sense of the word, and that uh, we, we are imperiling fisheries by, by fishing in this destructive uh, and wasteful way. But the trouble is that today, uh, uh, fishing, and all varieties of fishing really, are gaining a far more lethal edge with the application of modern uh, high-technology electronics and satellite positioning systems and uh, side-scan sonars, which can map the seabed in incredible detail and reveal every wrinkle and canyon that were formerly uh, unseen by fishers and perhaps acted as refuges for fish uh, and areas where they could retreat to that would not be hit by fishing. Today, we, we fish virtually everywhere, and uh, fishing gears reach to depths of two even 3,000 meters below the sea surface. And uh, that, that cannot be sustained over the long term. The, 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 the power we have to extract fish from the sea has greatly outstripped the capacity of fish to renew themselves and support the, the, the fisheries that we uh, engage in. And also, what about the total amount of food that we extract from the oceans? Uh, we've had some environmentalists on this program stating that we are peaking. Uh, we are peaking with regards to how much uh, protein we can extract from the oceans, and maybe we'll be going downhill from now on, even as the population rises. Uh, but what are your thoughts about food stocks? Well, uh, the amount of fish that we extract from the oceans 
uh, comes to about uh, 85 million tons every year. And this is just about the, the global peak uh, production that there, there has ever been. It's declined a little bit since the 1980s. There is enough fish uh, in those catches to feed everybody in the pl on the planet. The World Health Organization recommended two portions a week if the food were distributed properly and also if we actually ate all the fish we catch directly. In fact, though, what we do is we use it very wastefully. Much of the fish that is caught is fed to chickens and hogs and uh, to other fish that we raise in aquaculture facilities. And every time we feed this fish to something else, it, uh, the, the conversion rate is not very good, so it may take three, four pounds of, uh, of wild-caught fish to produce one pound of uh, farmed salmon, for example. So uh, really, because we're using fish in this way, there, there isn't enough uh, for everyone in the world to have their recommended um, portions uh, as judged by the World Health Organization. So really looking forward into the future, there's very little likelihood that uh, fisheries will be able to supply enough protein to support the growing world population for, for very much longer. Certainly we have to reform the way in which we go about fishing if we're going to see world fish supply sustained rather than uh, continuing on the downward trajectory that they uh, appear to have started on from the 1980s. Now, so so, yeah. what we need to do is to alter the, the, the whole relationship between people and the ocean. We need to uh, re restore the refuges that, they, that used to exist in the ocean where fish could uh, uh, remain unmolested by uh, fisheries and could reproduce undisturbed. Today, because virtually everywhere in the oceans is fished, and we, because we uh, catch virtually every uh, edible and commercially valuable species in the ocean, um, the only refuges that will exist from fishing will be the ones that we create deliberately. And in my view, what we need to do is to create a, a, a global network of marine reserves that is off-limits to all exploitation, so helping to restore the refuges that are so important for species in order for them to persist. If we had a network of marine reserves, we could prevent species from going extinct that are currently in steep decline, and we could also rebuild the productivity of fisheries that has been lost in the past due to over-exploitation. Okay, well, we'll get more into that in a second. Uh, but let me ask you about fish farms. Some people say that as fishes go extinct in the ocean, we'll have to rely more and more upon farming them on land. Other people point out the enormous pollution that goes on on these fish farms with PCB and other chemicals. But what are your thoughts about fish farms? Well, aquaculture or fish farming is uh, often thought of as a solution to the problems of overfishing. But... Because most of the species that we uh, raise in farms, things like salmon uh, and groupers, are carnivores, they're, they're predators, what we do is we catch a lot of wild fish to feed to the captive animals. And, and because of the uh, loss of food as, they, uh, as the animals respire and uh, um, grow, then uh, we're, we're actually not getting as much fish out of the farmed animals as, as we feed them in the first place. So it's it's a very uh, poor way of using scarce resources from the ocean. Uh, the other problems, though, are, are, are just numerous from aquaculture. When you 
when you feed these animals in uh, sheltered coastal embayments, for example, a lot of the food is wasted and it just ends up uh, polluting the sea. Penned animals also tend to transmit diseases to wild fish populations, causing them even greater uh, trouble. And aquaculture facilities also uh, have problems with introducing alien species into new parts of the world where they can spread uh, and become problematic. So aquaculture at the moment uh, is really not practiced in a very good way. There are ways that you could use aquaculture to help solve the, the world's uh, fish uh, fishery crisis. By raising animals that, are, uh, that feed from lower in the food chain, things like carp, which are uh, raised a great deal in aquaculture facilities in China, and also tilapia, for example. These are animals that we don't have to feed wild-caught fish to. We can, we can feed them with uh, vegetation, and, and they will grow successfully in that way. Also, we can raise things like mussels and oysters um, very successfully, and, and that has very little environmental impact because you don't need to feed them artificially. They, they get their wa uh, food from the, uh, the water that runs across them, and they also can help with the, even dealing with some of the coastal water quality problems because they, they filter the water and they extract uh, uh, organic material from it, and so they, they do us a favor in that way. Okay, well, we've talked about overfishing. Now let's talk about pollution. Uh, some people are concerned that the coral reefs are being bleached, and some people think that it's global warming that is bleaching and killing off the coral reefs. What are your thoughts? Coral reefs are uh, the, just the most spectacular of marine ecosystems and environments. They, they, they throng with hundreds of species of fish. There are these beautiful gardens of corals. But in the last two or three decades, the, the condition of coral reefs worldwide has really uh, declined enormously, and it's a great worry. Part of the reason is uh, bleaching, uh, which happens because of raised water temperatures. And uh, you get these mass die-offs of corals, and they all go uh, white before they die. And uh, that, that seems to be linked to global warming. On the other hand, there, there are other stresses affecting reefs. The, the extraction of fish from reefs by uh, fisheries has left them less able to cope with the kinds of stresses that they're being subjected to. And, and one reason for that is when you, when you uh, remove, for example, the populations of grazing fish that feed on seaweed, then the, po the, then the seaweed can go out of control on reefs and overgrow the coral. So overfishing is contributing to the global decline of coral reef health. And uh, I think what, what we need to do is to try and restore the abundance of animals on coral reefs as part of the solution uh, towards making them more resilient, more able to deal with some of the stresses of global climate change that are afflicting them. Clearly, that won't be enough uh, in, to, to save coral reefs. And what we need to do is to address the, the problems of global climate change at a, a world scale as well. Now, when we talk about pollution, we also have to realize that megacities are being built, gigantic, sprawling cities with huge amounts of sewage and waste products and detergents and chemicals that are created. So what is the impact, uh, especially on coastal areas, as populations start to soar, especially around megacities, dumping tremendous amounts of waste, often untreated waste, directly into the oceans? 
pollution is a, a major problem uh, and a, a big concern in coastal areas, but it's one of the problems that we are uh, beginning to deal with more effectively. Um, and, uh, for example, in Europe, the coastal water quality has been the focus of a lot of new policies over the last couple of decades, and the levels of some uh, pollutants in the water that we discharge into the sea has been reduced. That said, it is quite hard when you, when you have a lot of agriculture, for example, in a watershed, to limit the amount of, um, of fertilizing nutrients that run off into the sea. And what we are seeing is an increasing number of dead zones uh, spreading, especially around the mouths of uh, large rivers like the Mississippi. There's a, a, an area the size of Rhode Island, which uh, just dies off. It becomes uh, uh, completely... All the oxygen is lost from it every year in the Gulf of Mexico, and this kills all of the marine life in that area. So clearly we, we, we still have a long way to go before we bring pollution problems under control. And uh, one of the things that over-exploitation of the sea is doing, the removal of animals like uh, the, the menhaden, a fish that feeds on plankton, uh, is that it's reducing the capacity of the oceans to absorb the waste that uh, we put into it. So uh, what we have to do to, to get ourselves out of this problem is both to reduce the amount of waste that enters the ocean, so we're, we're co uh, controlling the pollution problem, but also to start restoring the abundance of ocean life and uh, restoring the integrity of ocean ecosystems so that um, processes such as nutrient cycling can uh, happen more effectively and uh, spare us some of the worst problems that come from our polluting activities. Now, after hearing all this, let's paint the worst-case scenario. Let's say that nations do nothing. Nations, of course, uh, work in their self-interest, and it's in their self-interest to uh, deplete uh, as much uh, of the oceans as they can and pollute them in the process. Let's say nothing is done and more and more species of fish become extinct. What is the worst-case scenario as it affects people like you, me, and our friends? The worst-case scenario uh, can be seen today as we look forward because uh, we're seeing ecosystem meltdown taking place in some areas that have been intensively exploited for a very long time. Off the west coast of Scotland in the Firth of Clyde, for example, in the uh, late 1990s, virtually all of the major fish species that have been caught there and supported fisheries for uh, well over 100 years have, have disappeared, and um, the, the catches have gone down to zero. What we have now is, is mud and prawns and a few sea scallops that are being exploited today, but the, the ecosystem itself has been degraded to a highly simplified state. Scientists looking forward suggest that if we don't change the way that we exploit the oceans, then all of the species that we uh, value today will have collapsed by the year 2050. If, if that happens, then really our options for feeding humanity will be very limited, and uh, society had better develop a taste for jellyfish and other kinds of plankton, because that really is virtually all that's going to be left.
And that warning closes our interview with Dr. Robert Callum of York University, author of a disturbing new book called The Unnatural History of the Seas. And if you want a copy of today's program, call the Pacifica Program Service at 1-800-735-0230. Well, stay tuned now for the second half of Exploration as we talk about music. Why is it that people gravitate toward music? Our special guest will be Oliver Sachs of Columbia University, author of the book Musicophilia. And please dial into my website. It's www.mkaku.org. And my latest book is Physics of the Impossible. Physics of the Impossible was on the New York Times bestseller list for five weeks, making it the number one science book in the country. Welcome. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is the second half of Exploration. In the first half of Exploration, we had Dr. Robert Callum of York University with a very disturbing thesis, and that is the oceans we know and love, the oceans that our grandparents knew and loved, They are not the oceans that our ancient ancestors knew. We have depleted the oceans, and because the human lifespan is so short, we have no recorded memory, no recorded memory of the oceans as they actually were to the ancient mariners. And he claims that the ancient mariners could, quote, smell the breath of whales on shore. When was the last time you could even envision smelling whales' breath? Think about that. According to Dr. Callum, we are witnessing the end game of the oceans. The oceans are not stable at all. And then in the second half of exploration, we're going to bring on Professor Oliver Sachs of Columbia University with a provocative new book called Musicophilia. And he traces the genetic, evolutionary, and biological origins of our desire to hear music. Why do we want to hear music? What about animals? Do they like to hear music? What is it about music that it has such a grip on human behavior? After all, the music industry is a multi-billion dollar industry, and a world without music is a world without sunlight. So once again, our special guest in this segment of exploration is Oliver Sacks, author of the book, Musicophilia. Now I'd like to introduce our special guest for today. We're very delighted to have with us Professor Oliver Sachs. 
He's a professor of psychiatry and clinical neurology at Columbia University, and he's written a rather odd book. It's called Musicophilia, Tales of Music and the Brain. Have you noticed that music seems to be fundamental to our existence? And scientists realize that music appreciation probably even predates language in our human evolution. And why is it that music not only enchants us, enlivens us, but also reflects our moods? And music is a tremendous industry everywhere in the world. And why is that? Well, scientists are trying to tease apart the secrets of music and the brain in the process. And today, once again, we have with us Professor Oliver Sacks, author of the new book, Musicophilia, who will try to explain why we appreciate music so much and what lights up in our brain. Professor Sachs, as a youth, how did you first get interested in science anyway? Um, I think that I got fascinated by, by various substances around the house, um, going from soap to sugar to starch Is that to right? paint, and, um, uh, and by various smells. And, and my first passion then was, was chemistry. Um, and it was, um, it, it was substances and their characteristics and their transformations, which fascinated me first in the household, and then I had a, a little lab of my own. Oh, a little chemistry kit, huh? Uh, well, well, it was a whole chemistry lab, and, I, and um, I was very encouraged here by my parents. In fact, my mother had wanted to be a chemist, but then went on to become a doctor and a surgeon, but mm -hmm. she, you know, she had a nostalgia for chemistry, and so when I sort of filled the house with hydrogen sulfide or had explosions or charred, explosions. Made charred things on the lawn, that was okay with them. <laughs> okay, as long as you didn't blow up the house. Not quite. Okay, now your book uh, is about music. So how did you get interested in the whole question of music, which actually sounds kind of strange for uh, somebody who specializes in clinical neurology? Um, well, um, I mean, on the personal side, I came from a, a fairly musical household where, you know, which was always full of piano music and my brothers played instruments and there would be chamber music recitals. But as a clinical neurologist, um, uh, for me, the crucial incident was really more than 40 years ago when I went to a, a little hospital in New York and there were saw dozens of patients who had had the sleepy sickness encephalitis lethargica, and they were profoundly Parkinsonian and frozen, transfixed, really unable to initiate any movement or speech. Mm -hmm. and at that time, medicine couldn't touch them, but music could. And if, they, uh, if music was played, they would suddenly be animated, be able to walk, to talk, to think. They would be become alive. And um, although it was a very sudden uh, on-off effect, and they would they would stop almost at mid-movement when the music stopped. But um, in Parkinson's, part of the brain is knocked out, which is necessary for the flow of movement and thought. And uh, um, 
and uh, they really need an, an external substitute for that part of the brain, and I, I think this is what music provided. Mm-hmm. Now, some evolutionary psychologists looking at our evolution as a species say that music is really fundamental, um, as it is in the animal kingdom with some animals. Uh, could you elaborate your thoughts about how fundamental music is to our own history? Well, some say it is fundamental, and some and some say it is trivial. Um, the um, uh, so that, for example, um, um, William James and and in our own time Stephen Pinker see have seen music as a rather trivial, incidental uh, thing. Um, but one finds music in every culture. It seems to be central in every culture. It has it has uh, all sorts of roles for bringing people together in. Um, uh, in war, in religion, and work, and play, in, in hunting, and uh, everything. And uh, there are certainly aspects of music which seem to have no um, exact parallel in speech or language. For example, the pulse or the beat of music. And uh, here, um, synchronization with this, tap, tapping time, moving with, uh, uh, with real or imagined music, appears spontaneously in every child, but it's not seen in any non-human animal. This is clearly part of human evolution, one which would seem to be independent, and then presumably to have, uh, to have been retained because it was of selective advantage, maybe in bonding people together. Now, some uh, uh, people who look at animals look at birds and crickets. Uh, they say that the uh, song of a bird uh, advertises sexual health and maturity. Uh, the bird is saying that I am free of parasites, uh, I have a clear voice, I am available, and therefore it's a mating right. Um, what are your thoughts? Um, um, well, well, this is certainly what Darwin thought, and he compared the song of birds to the, you know, to the peacock's tail, you know, and, and, and other forms of, of vocal or visual display. Um, uh, but... Um, whether one should, um, I mean, and, and clearly there are elaborate structures with, uh, um, with tone and rhythm, which are, um, but these tend to be repeated without much variation. And uh, th this is sort of, um, well, it is somewhat like an advertisement or a code, which one hears again and again, and, and then doesn't, uh, so, so it seems to have a very special, limited, uh, uh, crucial, but, but, but very limited, Function, whereas um, I think music for us sort of um, opens us out or can open us out in all sorts of ways and has very wide and mysterious powers. Now, uh, I once read an um, autobiography of a rock and roll star growing up in Long Island as a teenager, and he said that, uh, well, the girls didn't look at him. He was a scrawny little kid, and uh, his rock, uh, star rockdom wouldn't take place till much later. But then he picked up the guitar. And then all of a sudden, all the girls began to look at him in a different way. And then he said to himself, that's the ticket. The way to get dates is to pick up the guitar. Now, of course, in high school, a lot of boys dream about becoming the next rock star. So do you think, therefore, that mating rights, uh, mating rights of homo sapiens uh, are intertwined with music? Well, 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 absolutely. I, I, I mean, Darwin would have been fascinated by this story because Darwin thought that uh, music originated very early and before language, and, uh, and, and, and precisely was um, 
you know, would be used in wooing and courtship and drawing attention to oneself. And, um, uh, and, uh, 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 that music would have a, um, a, a seductive power, and so would the musician. Um, of course, there's a rather be a negative side to this, which Tolstoy talks about in one of his stories, Kreutzer Sonata, where the narrator's wife is seduced by a musician and his music, and then, of course, that results in a murder. But, um, but, but, but yes, um, absolutely, sort of, uh, you know, the young males with guitars are, are highly prized. And isn't it true that music sort of dates you and also puts you into a box? Uh, I was at a meeting once where we were talking about music, and someone says, oh, I don't want to listen to all those 1960s retreads. And all of a sudden, a lot of people in the, in the, in the group felt very old, because here was this young kid saying, uh, oh, we don't want any 60s songs, because you guys are old. So do you think music is a way to typify people? That is, there's hip music, there's uh, traditional music, classical music. Uh, it's a way to put you in a box. Um, I, 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 um, I haven't really thought of those terms. Um, I, I, I mean, I, um, uh, I, I suppose I could be classified in a melancholic way as, you know, as, as one of those old so-and-sos who, you know, has, who has only listened to classical music and dead white males from... 1600 to 1900, mm-hmm. but, um, but 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 so far as I'm concerned, there is an entire universe uh, in that classical music. Uh, there's no doubt an entire universe in, in rock music and Hindu music and in, in many other sorts of music. But I I, I don't feel um, I mean I might be socially classified by my taste, um, but uh, I, I don't care. I I, I don't feel, as it were, in an existential box. Okay. Uh, Well, let's get into some of the delightful examples that are mentioned in your book. Um, I had a chance to interact. In fact, I was on a TV program with an individual who has suffered from a brain problem whereby he has an attention span, a memory span, of only about seven seconds. Anything more than about seven, ten seconds he forgets and the only way to communicate with them is through music. Uh, could you elaborate? Um, yeah, well, well, this is Clive, or Clive Waring. I can sort of be open about his name because um, he has appeared sort of, you know, as you describe. And also his wife, Deborah, has written a wonderful book about him. But Clive was a very eminent musician, musicologist. He was a main introducer of Renaissance music into England. And then in 1985, he had a devastating herpes encephalitis. It's a, a very rare thing, one in a million people. We all have herpes virus, but almost no one gets encephalitis. But he got it, and it did a lot of neurological damage, and in particular, it wiped out many aspects of his memory, uh, so that he is now severely amnesic, and as you say, can't remember you know, an event, a person, what was said for more than a few seconds, and also has a uh, a retrograde deletion of memory, so that um, really the memories of the last sort of uh, 30 or 40 years have been wiped out for him. And uh, uh, and um, plus a lot of general knowledge. But uh, in, in fantastic contrast to this, there is this his virtually perfect power, and at the highest level, to... Um, uh, to perform music, to play, to sing, uh, to conduct a choir, to conduct an orchestra, and um, 
And when he's doing this, he seems totally intact and happy and absolutely himself. One feels he's all there. And I think he feels that. Uh, but, but within seconds of the music stopping, he has no memory of it, and he is sort of uh, in this sort of terrible, confounded state. Now, um, one would wonder, how come that a man who has apparently forgotten so much and forgotten all the people and the events and most of the general knowledge he had accumulated in a lifetime, how come this is possible? And um, I, uh, uh, are other things possible? One would say, yes, he can, he can walk around, he can dress rather elegantly, he, uh, uh, he can conduct a conversation, he is verbally fluent, or, um, and uh, he has these skills, and um, these skills of music-making, uh, the how of music, uh, um, it seems is uh, all of the procedures uh, are preserved in him because procedural memory, as psychologists call it, probably has a quite different basis from event memory or knowledge memory. And uh, the, uh, the ability to perform activities depends on lower parts of the brain and below the cerebral cortex, basal ganglia and the cerebellum, and these are not affected by the sort of encephalitis he had. Uh, they're quite different from the memory systems the, uh, which involve a part of the brain called the hippocampus. That's wiped out in Clive, but the lower parts of the brain are, quite, uh, are all intact, and these provide him with the action patterns for walking and talking and making music, and um, which he then invests with his uh, intelligence and sensibility, which is perfectly intact. Okay, I'll and so, so in a way, um, his great skill is preserved for him by lower parts of the brain. Okay, and the... this can happen with other things. I recently saw an actor, a very eminent actor, who was also amnesic, but who is still able to give stunning performances at a professional level and, uh, and to remember entire sort of Shakespeare plays and his, his acting repertoire. Okay. And, uh, uh, so that, that's what goes on with, with Clive. Anyway, in the program that I saw with Clyde, it was sort of like he was, was wrapped up with Groundhog Day. Remember that movie with Bill Murray where he's fated to repeat the same day over and over and over again? Because when you walk into the room, he's delighted to see you. But then after 10 seconds or so, he forgets who you are, and he's delighted to see you again. And he repeats the same thing over and over because he has no memory of meeting you in the first place. And yet he's able to play these beautiful piano place pieces, as you mentioned, which is uh, quite remarkable. Music is really a definitely a different part of the brain than we normally associate with uh, short-term memory. Also, tell us a little about the children with Williams Syndrome. What is Williams Syndrome? And describe these group of children that you mentioned in your book. Yeah, um, Williams was a cardiologist in, in the 1960s. He described these children who had problems with the heart and the great vessels, a lack of elastic tissue. They looked sort of strange. But uh, they also had a very remarkable constellation of character and mental traits, uh, both great gifts and great defects. Um, on the one hand, they were retarded, had IQs in the 50 or 60 range, but they were very articulate. They would use large vocabularies. They loved telling stories. They were immensely sociable. 
and they loved music. Um, without exception, people with Williams syndrome are enraptured by music. And I first saw this back in 95 when I went to a music camp, um, especially for people with Williams syndrome. Um, and uh, they, they ranged in age then from, from three to 50. Um, but the one thing they had in common was this, this, uh, this loquacity, this incontinent, trusting friendliness, and, and this love of music. And, and, and they would get together, they would make music together and talk about music. They weren't all musically talented, but they were all in love with music. Now, also in your book, you talk about people with amusia. And uh, to them, even listening to a gorgeous symphony sounds like a bunch of clattering sounds. Uh, could you elaborate? Um, well, if may, um, look, there are a lot of people who have a tinea, but a tone deaf. Uh, they may love music. They recognize music. They may, um, they may sing very loudly in the bath in a way which gives them great pleasure, but is intolerable to other people because they're off-key. But, but this is not the real, absolute amusia. In absolute amusia, uh, there may be gross difficulties telling whether one pitch is higher than another. And, um, and with this, uh, uh, people may not be able to detect a tone, a semitone, half an octave. And so the very building blocks of music are not there. And people in this situation can't recognize any music, can't reproduce any music. Music may sound sort of awful to them. And even if it doesn't sound awful, it sounds, as Nabokov uh, wrote in, in, in his autobiography, um, uh, music sounds like an arbitrary succession of more or less irritating sounds. Um, and, uh, and so they are really cut off from the perception of music and the enjoyment of music, although their perception of speech sound may be perfect. But... Um, but speech is not nearly as demanding of, uh, of pitch perception as music is. And, of course, the words give meaning, whereas uh, music, in a sense, does not have meaning, and one is exclusively dependent on hearing it right. Now, sometimes we hear about people with perfect pitch. That is, they hear a sound, and then they can say, oh, that's C-sharp, or uh, that's yeah. F. Is that true, or is that just mythology, uh, oh, that oh, there's no, something called I'm, perfect I'm, pitch? No, no, this is perfectly true, and the person who says G-sharp uh, instantly um, um, says it with the same conviction and certainty as we say blue or green, uh, without any need to, you know, to make a comparison with another color. Um, and uh, the uh, absolute pitch seems to be uh, relatively rare in the general population, like 1 in 10,000. It's much commoner, 1 in 10 or 15, among professional musicians. Uh, it is bizarrely common, incidentally, in those who are born blind. Is that half right? Of the, half of those who are born blind have absolute pitch. Um, and also it is much commoner in people who speak a tonal language, like Thai or Mandarin, where the, the, where the speech has to stay within a quarter of a tone or an eighth of a tone. Um, there's a, a thought that all of us may be born, that absolute pitch may be universal in the first year of life, but then gets pruned out of the brain in the vast majority of people um, for whatever reason. Although intense exposure to music early in life 
seems to be able to allow one to retain it. Although if one doesn't have absolute pitch, there's no way of getting it. And it does depend on specific mechanisms in the brain. Okay, now let me talk about something that everybody has experienced at one point or another, and that is sometimes you get a catchy tune in your mind and you can't let go. I mean, it just repeats itself over and over again. You can't sleep at night. You can't get rid of this tune. Uh, why is that? Um, well, um, these catchy tunes, they're adhesive. Um, the Germans used to speak about earworms. I like the term brainworms. Uh, um See, um, 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 all of us, there is something about musical memory and the internal playing of music, even in relatively non-musical people who can't, for example, voluntarily bring out a tune. But I think all of us have involuntary musical imagery, and um, uh, which usually has some relation to context, to our feelings, to what we are doing. But with these earworms, uh, you hear a piece of music and then it sort of somehow gets into a loop and becomes autonomous and, as you say, plays itself endlessly, um, having lost all connection with, uh, with sense, with meaning, with pleasure. Um, and um, I think this is an example of, of how our musical susceptibility becomes a sort of musical vulnerability. We can, we can be taken over by a few bars of music. Um, in a way which I think doesn't have any parallel in, in other senses. I mean, the nearest might be uh, a word which fascinates us or a couple of lines of poetry, but not everyone has that, whereas I think probably almost everyone has had earworms at one time or another. And, uh, and of course, they're exploited by, um, you know, by popular music and by the advertising industry. Um, although it, it could be sort of counterproductive. I, I mean, if I have an earworm about toothpaste, uh, I, w I would never want to buy that toothpaste. I would want to stay as far as possible from it and its earworm. Now, let me ask you a question that is not exactly addressed in your book, but it's a multi-billion dollar industry to write catchy tunes that hit number one on the pop charts. And there are many theories as to what constitutes a catchy tune. Uh, but in your research, have you ever came across any way in which to figure out what makes a tune catchy so that millions of people spend hundreds of millions of dollars getting that piece of music and playing it at home and, and humming it in the shower? Um, and of course, uh, composers uh, and as well as pop stars would love to get their hands on such a formula. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, well, 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 certainly I think sort of um, uh, Beethoven and Tchaikovsky would not be entirely sad that uh, some of their music is, is in our repertoire, and, as it were, in the top ten, you know, a, a century or a century and a half later. Um, there, there's been a lot of research on what, what sort of music tends to... Um, to get round and round like that. I'm not really well up in this. It seems to be partly sort of associations and emotional associations, but also there may be certain musical intervals and rhythms which somehow somehow hook the mind. But then, um, but an earworm is also like, uh, you know, like um, what Dawkins would call a meme, M-E-M-E, -E, or a sort of an infectious cultural agent. And once something becomes popular, people talk about it and then it spreads and spreads, 
and um, and 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 we're like sheep here, and and and, and, um, I, uh, and sort of um, I think by a sort of mechanical business, like an infection, you know, certain tunes spread, and then they can be dropped again. Um, but a, a famous earworm, if you want, a famous song which everyone loved 40 years ago was White Christmas, Bing Crosby's White Christmas. Uh, um, um, now probably most younger people don't know it and would also find it unintelligible. It's not their thing. But it was our thing, or, or one thing, sort of 40 years ago, well, I, years ago. I guess they could date you then, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, almost 60 years ago, I, I think it originally came out in the war. Well, I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our first special guest was Dr. Robert Callum of York University, author of a very disturbing book called The Unnatural History of the Seas. And our second special guest was Professor Oliver Sachs of Columbia University, talking about the origin of our love for music, and his book is called Musical Philia. Well, once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, inviting you to join us every week for a discussion of science and its impact on society. My website is www.mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. My latest book is called Physics of the Impossible, which sailed on to the New York Times bestseller list for five weeks making it the number one science book in the country. Good day.